0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans 12, the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. And this morning we're going to look at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, under the heading of the Christian's greatest duty. The Christian's greatest duty, love, from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Romans 12, beginning in verse 9 Let love be genuine. this morning. Beloved brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian's greatest duty is love. There is nothing more basic to our Christian faith. There is nothing more central to our Christian lives. This morning, we cannot overstate the importance of love. It is at the very heart of our discipleship. And so Paul sums up your whole duty in that just one word. Love. I think we can read verse 9 in some ways as the theme of these 20 or so commandments. Let love be genuine. It is placed in the first part of this list of commands, because the Christian life, in the Christian life, love is not to be the secondary matter. In the Christian life, love is to be the primary matter. It is to be the filter through which we view all other commands. In fact, we could even say this morning that love is the very cause of the gospel we celebrate here. Love is the great motivator of redemption. I want to show you this if you just flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Paul says the whole reason that he wrote this epistle is because of the love of God. Romans 1, verse 7, he says to all of those in Rome, look at this, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's why he's writing this letter. And this letter is principally about the doctrine of justification. Flip in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. This is the great central thesis of Romans. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 5 But God shows his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Make no mistake this morning, if you are a believer, the source of your salvation is. Love. It is the motivator of the Gospel. But for Paul, love is not just the most important virtue because it motivates the Gospel. It's the heart of God, so to speak. But love is also the most important virtue because it is the motivator. It is the motivation behind the Christian life. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest gift is not tongues or prophecies or healings and miracles. The greatest gift is love. And in 2 Timothy 3, he says the greatest vice, the greatest sin, if you will, is inordinate love. A love of self or a love of money. You see, it's very important as believers that we get love right. But in our day and age, there is not a more misunderstood virtue than love. See, if you were to ask someone who is in love, what is love? They might say it is a mushy, ooey-gooey emotion. You watch a romance movie, love is something that embraces all, forgives all, forgets all, overcomes all. Culturally, it seems, in the last few years, love has become more of a physical thing. It's an erotic thing. It's a tapping into your natural instincts. We see this in the slogan of many of the LGBTQ movements. Love is love. You can't help what you are. But is that how the Bible describes love? Is that what Paul is speaking about when he says love is that principal virtue of all? The answer, of course, is no. Biblically, love is not about loving yourself. It's nothing about you. Biblically, love is a sacrificial self-giving that seeks the good of others. That's how the Bible describes love. A sacrificial Self-giving that seeks the good of other people. And what Paul's going to show us this morning is that this love is not confined to you. It's not selfishness. But this love needs to be extended to the church. This love needs to be extended to strangers. And this love needs to be extended even to your enemies. That's our theme for our time together. In Christ, we are compelled to love. That is, we are compelled to sacrifice. To give of ourselves. For the good of your church, for the love of strangers, and for the love of your enemies. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about loving your church. He says that the sacrificial love must begin with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have your Bible, look at Romans 12. Because it's very clear he's writing to the church when he says in verse 10, love one another in brotherly affection. Verse 11, serve the Lord. Verse 12, be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, it is of supreme importance that Christians learn how to love one another. But the nature of this love is not to be patterned after the world, but we are to imitate our Heavenly Father. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, listen to this, Be imitators of God, beloved children, and walk in love. You catch that? Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Be imitators of God and walk in love love see the nature of Christian love is found in the very nature of God how do we love like God Paul writes this let love be genuine you need to love like God and there's no there should be no question brothers and sisters that you are equipped to do this Remember what Paul has said in the book of Romans thus far. Romans chapter 4, you have been justified by faith. Romans chapter 6, you have been made alive for good works. You have been filled with the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. You have been called to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. You have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit, verses 3 through 8. You have been absolutely showered in the love of God. No one knows the love of God more than Christians know the love of God. And He shows us His love that we might love one another. Not that you would have fuzzy feelings for one another. Not that you get in touch with your natural, animalistic, erotic nature. But you are called to a self-sacrificing love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible is so relevant. Paul wrote this some thousands of years ago. But he hits the nail on the head even here for us today. Because too often in the church, the love that is practiced is more of a fiction than a reality. In fact, the Greek word here for genuine, you probably know even in English, is koupakritos. Where we get our English word hypocrite. Love is not to be hypocritical. It is not to be done in fiction. It is to be done genuinely from the heart. In fact, this word hypocrite, the Greek word for hypocrite, is the old Greek word for actor. When someone would stand on a stage with a mask, and they might have a smile on their mask, but a frown really on their face. Paul says that is not the way that we are to love one another in the church. We need to have a genuine love, And a genuine love is the righteous serving of one another. Righteousness is the work of love. See, to have a genuine love is not to seek your own pleasure, not to seek your own achievements, or to receive something, but genuine love is to serve others in acts of mercy and kindness and goodness. Loving like God means that you don't just have a mushy feeling for one another, but God sacrificed Himself for the good of the church. That's what you're being called to. But there's a second thing that Paul says about love. See, our ESV puts a period after that first sentence, let love be genuine, but abhorring what is evil goes hand in hand with love. Sometimes when it comes to love, we want to separate the law and the hatred of evil from it. But law and love cannot be separated. In fact, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul says, let your love be genuine and abhor what is evil. Not a contradiction. The hatred of evil is actually the genuine partner of love, they go hand in hand. Let me give you a few examples. Does not a father who genuinely loves his children hate the person who risks their life? Does not the loving wife who hates her husband hate the sin that puts her marriage in danger? Does not someone who, love, who loves his country hate the very thing that puts it at risk see love is not love does not love everything love must distinguish and abhor that is hate what is evil we actually see this principle in our god who we are told in 1 john chapter 4 verse 8 is love himself god is love But we also see of God that He also hates what is evil. He hates wrongdoing with a proper, righteous hatred. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. This is such an important verse for us this morning. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. We see the writer say these words God is love, yes. But there are six things that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Then jump down to 17. God hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. See, God does not love sin. God does not accept us as we are. He does not look the other way when we are practicing unrighteousness. Instead, God loved us so much to send His Son to purify us. God actually had to make us lovable. Do you see what Paul is saying here this morning? To truly love someone is not to accept and embrace their sin. To truly love someone is to tell them the truth. To truly love someone, we could say in other words, is to preach the Gospel to them. Say to the people you love, repent of your sins. Trust in God's grace. That's how God loved you and me. He loved us so much that He couldn't leave us in our sins and so He cleansed us by the blood of Jesus. In fact, the most unloving thing you can do for someone is look the other way when they're living in sin and then they go to hell. The most loving thing you can do is love them enough to tell them the truth we could put it another way, that the church needs to be filled with grace and truth. can't just be all grace. All unmerited favor. We're just looking the other way, looking the other way, looking the other way, and it can't but just be all truth. This is what you're doing. This wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong. You need to have both grace and truth. And in practice, parents, what this means is that in Jesus, you need to love your children enough to tell them when they are in sin and on the way to hell. Husbands and wives, you need to love your spouses enough to tell them when they are in sin. And if they won't listen to you, then you need to bring a friend. And if they won't listen to them, then you need to bring it to the elders. In Trinity United Reformed Church, Paul is saying, we need to love one another enough to be able to say, I love you so much, I need to talk to you. How about a sin? See, love is not just something you say. Love is not just, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's not true love. Paul says love is an action. Love is work. See, when God loved the church, He acted. Look at Romans 5 verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8 in your Bibles. God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He acts. He does love. And so Paul gives some 20 or so commands here in this passage. And I want to try to summarize them, otherwise we'd be here all day, into five actions that we need to exemplify in our church. Five actions, five applications we need to exemplify. First, notice that Paul says, Christian love is to be like family. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. We are called to love our neighbors But we all know that we have a special affection for those who are in our homes. This is another Greek word you probably know. The word is Philadelphia, brotherly love. That amongst believers, there needs to be a tender, intimate affection. The same thing you have for your siblings. That when you look across the aisle at one another, they're not just strangers. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Members of the household of God. Your love is to take on an action when your brother comes, to, comes home for dinner. You throw your arms around them. You welcome them. You rejoice in their presence. That's the first thing. It needs to be like family. Secondly, Christian love honors. Paul says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing Honor, that's a, the physical imagery here. The word outdo can literally mean take the lead or strive to be first in honor. See, we are not to sit on our heels waiting for people to honor me first and then I'll honor them. We're not to be reluctant in showing honor. But we're to seek to outdo one another. Even in Reformed circles, Paul says. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, don't wait around for people to recognize you and your contributions. Instead, be alert in what they are contributing and recognize them. Third, Christian love endures. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Christian love endures. But how do we endure in love? How do we keep love fresh? I admit to you that there are sometimes, after a year in the ministry, I think to myself in the morning, I really hope no one calls today. I just want to get my sermons done. I don't feel like loving anyone. And God, in His wisdom, always sends three, four, or five phone calls. But I think these commandments here are actually showing us where the strength to love comes from. The strength to have an enduring love comes not from within us, but from God. One commentator says, these virtues summon the believer to, believer to persevere in love. See, there might be times when we say, I don't want to love, but then when we serve the Lord in our fervent in spirit, Turning to his word and in prayer. When we rejoice in the salvation we've been given, when we're patient in tribulation and constant in prayer, it fills us with the love of God so that we can love others. Christian love endures, but it also shares. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Our love should hold nothing back. We should give to one another our time and support and love. And fifth and finally, Christian love is humble. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Christian love is to imbibe a humility in itself. Humility enough that we would weep with somebody who is weeping. That we would rejoice with somebody who is rejoicing. That we would put our own opinions aside and seek the unity of the body. If you want to love God more, you need to reflect on God's love for you. And the more you love Him, the more you will love His children. And the more you love His children, the more you will love strangers. See, don't look at how good God's children are and condition your love for one another based on if they are good enough. You'll never love the bride of Christ as you ought. Remember that God loved his bride when she was unlovable. The Bible says the bride of Christ was a harlot and yet he loved. Christ gave away his strength, his time, his service, his good name, his fame. He gave away every comfort of life. He gave up even his body and his soul for you. That's true love. So embrace your brother as Christ embraced you. And remember one other thing before we look at our second point. If we don't love, remember what Jesus said, that our worship will be hindered. He says, leave your offering at the altar. Matthew 5, verse 24, and go be reconciled. As much as you are able, seek reconciliation. Now sandwiched in between Paul's teaching on loving the church and loving your enemies is just one little command, but it's so full. That love of strangers. We see in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The word hospitality in Greek, phyloxena, translates literally to this, Love strangers. Love strangers. The Christians are called not only to love our friends in the church, but also those who are strangers. Now the church to which Paul was writing would have been intimately aware with the idea of hospitality. Remember in the ancient world, traveling preachers and ministers relied entirely on hospitality. Jesus himself went town to town and relied on the hospitality of people. We see the book of Acts tell us, in Acts 28, verse 7, that the early Christians relied on hospitality. Remember, inns at that time did not have the regulatory bodies that we have. They were often dangerous and dirty and dens of depravity. And so many believers, if they were traveling somewhere else, would rely on hospitality of of other believers in the churches for their care. So make no mistake, beloved, when Paul says love strangers, he is not simply talking about those who look like you, sound like you, and believe like you. But he is, a, he is actually saying extend love to foreigners. Extend love to strangers. Maybe even extend love to Canadians. But there's something totally different about our hospitality today and the hospitality that God is calling us to. Today, if you meet someone who is interested in hospitality, they're talking about hotels, bed and breakfast, tourism, cruises. And our view of hospitality is simply this, I will take care of you if you pay me. But biblical hospitality is extending the invitation to people who can't even reciprocate. Jesus summarizes biblical hospitality like this. When you give a feast, Luke 14, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. The hospitality Paul is calling us to is a giving and an expecting nothing in return. See, it goes so much farther than simply caring for the physical needs of someone. But biblical hospitality is an expression of God's love. We come back to God's love. Biblical hospitality is an expression of God's love. I trust that you have heard of the author Rosaria Butterfield. She was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, a professed lesbian feminist and a leader in the LGBTQ rights movement who came to know the Lord. She wrote an article in a Syracuse magazine newspaper where she was critiquing the Promise Keepers movement. And a pastor, local pastor in that New York area wrote a response and invited her to have supper, to have dinner with his family. She says when she sat in that pastor's driveway, her, her mind, in her mind, the Bible was a book of racism, sexism, and homophobia. But when she recounts how she came to know the Lord, she says what she gives the credit to was the hospitality of a local pastor Reverend Ken Smith, who brought her to Christ. She writes these words. Listen to this. She says, the threshold of their life was like none other. The threshold of their life, meaning the door to their house, brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing prepared me for this kind of openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for this unstoppable Gospel and the love of Jesus made manifest by daily practicing of hospitality in that Christian home. Long before I ever walked into the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality of who Jesus said He is, and eventually came face to face with my sin. See, what Paul is saying, remember in verses 3-8, through not everybody is called to preach sermons. Not everybody has the same gifts. Not everybody will be an elder. Not everybody will instruct the youth. But everyone, to put it in a modern term, is able to put on a crockpot of chili. Every single one of us is able to welcome the visitors in this church. Every single one of us is able able to love the stranger and through loving the stranger, Proclaim the love of God in word and in deed. Love each other and love strangers. Now, a word for those who want to practice hospitality, love of strangers, is that you do not need a clean house to practice hospitality. This is the Achilles heel of hospitality. We think that we need to have a clean house and an elaborate meal and desserts to impress people. But when God came to Lot in Genesis 18, He wasn't inspecting the dust on the mantle or the meal that He offered. He was concerned with the heart of His servant. What matters most is do you have love in your heart for strangers, Paul says. That's what hospitality means, love of strangers. That means we need to love others more than we love ourselves. Folks, you need to love strangers more than you love the Toronto Blue Jays. You need to love strangers more than you love your afternoon nap. You need to love it more than coffee time with grandma. You need to love it more than the Detroit Lions. And I still expect you to be here this evening, I should add. Our houses should not simply be our fortress of solitude. Our houses should also be pit stops for strangers on the way to heaven. Love your church. Love strangers. And we are also called, thirdly and finally, we are called to love our enemies. You might be saying this morning, it's hard enough for me to love my church. It's hard enough for me to love strangers. But Paul is taking this to a new level when he says we need to love our enemies. One thing that's clear from this teaching is that Paul assumes Christians will have enemies. The Christian life is not a walk through the tulips. Remember, he's writing to the church in Rome, the birthplace of Emperor Nero's systematic persecution of Christians. At this time that Paul is writing, Christianity uh, would have been an obscure sect of the Jewish religion, but would quickly move to enemy number one in Rome. Secular sources tell us that sometime after Paul wrote this, that Christians would be hunted down, slaughtered, even impaled upon spires and fed to wild animals. And yet, Paul writes, bless, not curse. Paul is, of course, echoing Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5. The first way Paul says that we love our enemies is that even when people persecute us, when they hate us and hunt us down, we do them no harm. He says in verse 14, repay no one evil for evil. See, when we are offended, it's our natural tendency to want to get some payback. But Paul says that if payback involves you in sin, you're actually giving place to the devil in your heart. That's why Paul says, look at verse 19, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Don't let the devil in by sinning against someone. Let God in. You don't need to take this matter into your own hands. God loves you so much, He knows when you are wronged. He cares for His children so much, He sees their bruises and their tears. He is the sovereign King. He is the righteous judge of the universe. And the right belongs to Him to administer justice. And when someone sins against you, and it doesn't go unpunished, remind yourself that every man will one day give an account before God. You don't need to avenge yourself. Verse 19 Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. See, I'm sure there are people in this room where someone has taken advantage of you and there was no legal recourse. This passage says, God knows, and he will hold them accountable. Maybe someone lied to you. God knows, he will hold them accountable. There is not a single offense against God's children that will be forgotten or will go un- unatoned. Matthew Henry says repay, to repay evil for evil is to avenge ourselves and is to step on the throne of God. We need not do it. Instead, we are called to love. That's what that curious phrase means, heaping coals upon their heads. That when we love those who do evil against us, their conscience burns. They know what they're doing is wrong. And it may be through your love that they even repent. We are to do no harm. Instead, we are to do good as Christians. We are in fact called to the greatest good here. Blessing those who persecute you simply means that you would pray for them. It is asking God that he would be good to them in Christ even though they have been bad to you in sin. Even though they have done something evil to you, you pray that their sin would be atoned for on the cross. This is exemplified all throughout the New Testament, when Stephen prays, Lord, hold not the sin against them. And the Apostle Paul was converted. When Jesus upon the cross said, Father, forgive. And he atoned for the sins of all of his people. We pray that they would confess even the evil they have done against us and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. See, this is a command totally contrary to our sin nature. It's peculiar even in all of religions. It's only in Christianity where you are called to love your enemies. But it is the pattern of the gospel. We are called to love our enemies because God loved His enemies. See, the Bible teaches that God created a perfect world. That He created man and woman as the crown of His creation. But by the willful disobedience of this creation, evil came upon this world. It says in Genesis 7, He looked upon this world and every intention of their heart was evil. Genesis 6, verse 5. That those made in the image of God worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. That when God looked upon His world, they were lovers of themselves. They were haters of God. All had sinned and fallen short of His glory. The principle to love your enemies is drawn from this. That when God looked upon this world that had rejected Him, it says He loved the world. And He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved His enemies so much that He sent His Son to die for their sins. Self-sacrifice for the good of others. To endure eternal wrath upon the cross for His enemy. God overcame evil with the goodness of the cross. And He calls us to mimic Him. To follow in the way of Jesus. We love our enemies by reflecting God's love. The love He had for us while we were still sinners. You can exemplify this with a life of service. Pray for the souls of your enemies. Even the desiring of their salvation. Because remember, that wicked people who don't know God's love do not have eternal life. And the church is called to stand as a testimony of love to one another, to strangers, and even our enemies. Love like God loves. And only in God is it clear what love is. A self-sacrifice for the good of others, for the glory of God, just like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the deep love of God who love sinners such as us. Father, we know that the church is a collection of sinners. Father, may we love them like You have loved. We know that there are strangers who will come in whom we don't know. May we love them like You have loved. Even our enemies who sin against us, who do us harm, may we love them like You have loved. By the power of Your Spirit. And in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.